the God of all power who can do anything and everything that you want to do. We celebrate today the fact that Christ historically at a moment in time rose from the dead to demonstrate victory. And it's in your victory that we now stand as your people and thank you for what you have done for us. We pray now as we look at more of what you have written that our lives would be changed as a result of encountering you in your scriptures. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated and kids, you are dismissed to your activities. Hope you have a great time. If you are uh, new with us today, my name is Chuck. I'm one of the pastors here at Church on Mill. And uh, we're going to look at a story today from a book in the Bible called uh, Isaiah. So if you brought a Bible, you might turn to Isaiah 53 with me. If not, there are some Bibles in the back at the left side of the coffee bar. You're welcome to go and get one. If you don't have one, please feel free to take that. It is our gift to you. I would like to try to uh, persuade you to consider just one idea today and won't take real long at it. And here's essentially the topic I'd like us to address together. Everybody lives for something or someone. And that something or someone is what you believe, what we believe, will bring us most joy. That's essentially all that I want to try and convince you of today. Now, we're in an academic setting, so let me say it in a more scholarly way for those of you in school. The ever-present and undeniable posture of our hearts is towards the object of our greatest delight. Do you feel smarter now? Now, those of us in the room that need it a little more plainly, here it is. We desire and pursue and build life around what we think will satisfy us the most. So, those are three different ways of saying the same thing. That you live for the thing or the person or the stuff or the looks that you believe will bring you the most joy and satisfaction. You can't help but do that. It is the very nature of being human. Now, don't take my word for it. Let's look at somebody really smart. Pascal put it like this. All men seek happiness. This is without exception. Whatever different means they employ, they all tend to this end. The will never takes the least step but towards that object. Now, sometimes this process seems to work itself out. It seems to accomplish what we set our hearts to. So the student gets the degree, the middle-aged man gets the sports car, the young adult gets the attractive spouse, the promotion finally comes, the offer on the home gets accepted, on and on and on and on. For a while, the object of our delight seems to quench the thirst for joy. But what happens when that object that you've made your, your highest goal gets taken away? What happens when the thing you've set your sights on dissolves? What happens when you reach what you've been striving for and it doesn't seem to satisfy? Honestly, few of us ever reach that point. We, we ever get the thing that we've actually set our eyes on all of life. But there are some people that do. There are some that get the thing they're striving towards and then that experience the heartbreak of having it taken away. If I could find maybe the ultimate example of that in our society, it would be wealth, success, achievement, 
and everything that seems to go with those things as they move and come together. When things fell apart in 2008 in the financial collapse of our economy, several prominent people killed themselves. The CFO of Freddie Mac hung himself in his basement. A money manager who lost $1.4 billion of his client's money in the Madoff Ponzi scheme slit his wrists and bled out in his Madison Avenue office. The CEO of Sheldon Goods shot himself in the head while sitting in the back of his Jaguar. Thousands more people this year will die in America than will, will die by suicide than will die by car accident. In the last 15 years, the greatest increase in suicide is in men in their 50s. We, we always think of suicide as being a teenage thing. It's not. More men in their 50s will kill themselves this year than any other classification of people. Why? Well, that's the moment in life when you're supposed to have arrived, when you're supposed to have attained the things you've set your life Most of us obviously won't go all the way to suicide, but are we driven to despair and depression and porn and approval and sickness and financial ruin because we're worshiping something that cannot bear the weight of being worshipped? It was never meant to be worshipped. Work is not a bad thing. Achievement is not a bad thing. Wealth is not a bad thing. Having children is not a bad thing. Sex is not a bad thing but they're not ultimate things. So if we look to them to do what only God can do, we'll end up being disappointed. So what does this have to do with Easter? You may be asking. Thank you. Everything. It has everything to do with Easter. God cares considerably more about your joy than you do. Your quest for joy is pathetic compared to God's desire for your joy. Again, don't take my word for it. Let's look at somebody smart. C.S. Lewis put it like this. Our Lord, find, our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We're half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he can't imagine what's meant by the offer of a holiday at sea. We're far too easily pleased. The problem with your desire for joy isn't the desire for joy. It's that you don't want joy bad enough. And that causes you to look for it in things that can't possibly give it. So what I'd love for us to consider today in Isaiah 53 is the solution to this problem. It's the solution that all of us can find sufficient. It's the solution to the quest that every human being who has ever lived has sought after. Because to seek joy is to be human. It's what we all do. Now the entire Bible from the very beginning, Genesis 1, until the very end of Revelation can be summarized in simply one word. The word might surprise you though. It's not love, it's not truth, it's not Jesus, it's not gospel. It's not sin or forgiveness or covenant or hope. It's not spirit or heaven or hell. The Bible, in a word, is about substitution. 
It's about us substituting people and things and accomplishments and money and sex and status for the place that only God can fill. And therefore, God substituting himself for us. That's it. That's the Bible. That's all that this book is designed to communicate. In the midst of thousands of words and hundreds of stories, it all comes down to that one word, substitution. I hope you'll give me just a few minutes to try and flesh that out. Every moment of every day is the celebration of some substitute in our hearts. The major religions of the world all agree on at least one thing. That one thing is not how the problem of life is fixed. We come up with very different answers to that question. But we do all agree that there's something wrong in the world. That things are not the way they're supposed to be. That the world is broken. That we're broken. And because of that brokenness, we've all sought to fill that void with some quest for joy. The Bible calls that worship. Whatever you give your highest affections towards, whatever you pursue the most, whatever you give your joy to is what you worship. Now the scriptural word for that when it's substituted in the place of God is is a word we don't use much. It's called idolatry. When you hear the word idol, what's the first thing that comes to mind? A statue, yes, maybe one like this. No, that's not Frankenstein. (laughs) When we think of idolatry, that's the kind of thing that comes to mind, right? The stuff of primitive, old-fashioned, uneducated, ignorant, backwoods people. That's the stuff of idolatry. Surely we've moved beyond that. We're Americans. We live in an educated society. We have lots of money. We go to school for a long, long time. In the ancient world, it's true that essentially everybody worshipped idols. We've moved beyond that, haven't we? If you saw someone today bowing down in front of a statue like that, you would mock them, at least inside. You would say they're superstitious and ignorant and foolish, wouldn't you? Come on, do something weird and be honest in church. That's what you would do. So we've moved beyond that, right? Not really. In fact, not at all. We worship idols all the time. Now, in the ancient world, when we read books in history and we see pictures like this, or we travel to Rome or to Greece, and we see these statues, we think how crazy these people were but we've misinterpreted what they were doing. You see, idolatry in the ancient world wasn't about the statues. It was about what the statue represented. It was about what the statue could provide. It was about wealth and sex and fertility and health. That's what the idolatry was about. You weren't really worshiping a statue. You were worshiping what you believed the statue would provide you. So there was a God for healing and sex and war and fertility and rain and sun and power and health and wealth and beauty and love. So let's go back to where we started. 
we desire and pursue and build life around what we think will be most satisfying to us. Why did people in the ancient world worship statues made with hands? Because they were means to an end. There's absolutely no difference in what we do today. We don't see temples and statues on every corner, but we worship nonetheless. Do we have gods of money and status and achievement and beauty? Of course. We don't bring gifts to the statue of Aphrodite, but ladies, how many of you struggled mightily with what you would wear today? We don't pray to Baal, but how many of us are utterly consumed with the passion to have more? And more and more. We don't wear necklaces to Asherah to get pregnant or to survive childbirth. But how many in the room today are depressed, brokenhearted, because you haven't had a child? We don't burn incense to Aries, but how many of us put our hope in the size of the U.S. military? And we debate politics such that we look like preschoolers. We don't save up to buy statues of Athena to put in our homes, but how many of us spend so much money on arts and entertainment that we're drowning in debt? We don't travel across town to pray to Dionysius, the god of wine and party, but how many of you have a headache today for what you did last night? We are no different. We simply think we're better because we've cut out the middle thing, the statue. But we're doing the same stuff. Why? Because you can't help it. The posture of the human heart is bent towards worship. Ever bit as much as it means I'm human because I have to take in breath, it means I'm human because I have to take in something to worship. You simply can't help it. You're a natural-born worshiper. The question isn't, what do you worship? Or will you worship? But it's, is it God who can satisfy? Or is it something else who won't satisfy? Anything that sits on the throne of your heart, anything that consumes your thoughts, anything that reaches the pinnacle of your affections that you look to to supply you with joy is the thing you're worshiping. So what's your substitute for God? It's not hard to find out. Honestly, it's pretty simple. When you're bored and you have that moment of free space, that five seconds of quietness, what does your imagination drift towards? What is it that you're most afraid of not attaining? What do you think if it was taken away from you would make life not worth living? What are you most easily motivated by? That, my dear friend, for you, is your God. Anything, anything can take that place. So we are no better, no more sophisticated, no more further along than the people that kneeled down before statues like that. We're the same. Now, what's the problem with this, with this substitution? 
Well, let me give you two. There's a whole bunch. But first and foremost, and this is the kind of thing you'd come today to expecting to hear. First and foremost, this problem of substituting God for other things is offensive to God. It's an affront to God because only God is God. Yes, I had to get an advanced degree to learn that. Only God deserves to be the subject of our worship. Only God is good enough to worship. Only God deserves our worship. But second, and maybe this is not something you came expecting to hear, what else is wrong with this? It's destined to fail. If you prop up something else as your, your, your quest for joy in the place of God, then you will find that it's destined to flop. It will not work. It will fail you. As one scholar says, idols never fail to fail. Only God can bear the weight of worship. Everything else cracks under the pressure of praise. So the story of your life and my life is that we've substituted God for something else. But the greatest story ever told is that God, in response, substituted himself. He did not merely run away. He did not merely respond in wrath. He did not merely turn against us. He gave himself. Easter is the celebration of a better substitute. One that's worthy of worship. One that can bear the brunt and weight of praise. That brings us to Isaiah. There's a book in the Bible, in the Old Testament, that first two-thirds of the Bible, that was written pre-Christ, before he came to earth. There's a book in there called Isaiah. It was written around the year 700 B.C. And it's a prophecy about Jesus. Now, until the middle of the 1900s, the oldest Hebrew copies of this book were from around the year 1300, somewhere between 1,000 and 1,300. So if you do that math, that's 1,700 years after Isaiah was originally written. So we didn't have the original. We didn't have copies of the original. We didn't have copies of the copies of the copies of the original. We had something much, much, much later. And scholarship particularly German scholarship, said, you cannot possibly believe that you have the right stuff, that you can count on these words. But in 1947, a group of shepherds were throwing rocks, and they came across this. Let's see a picture of the scroll. This is something known as the Great Isaiah Scroll. It was found in a com community called Qumran. You can go to Israel and see it today. This is the entire book of Isaiah. It's been dated to 125 B.C. Now I'm assuming today that there are some of us here today that are unconvinced about what I'm saying. And I'm thrilled that you're here. We're so glad that you've chosen on Easter to come and join us. You're always welcome here. I was once like you. I thought you had to check your brain at the door to believe in Christianity. I thought there's no way I could possibly put my faith in a book. And then stuff like this got up under my crawl. Because if Isaiah was dated 
A copy of Isaiah was dated before Christ ever came. And it tells me exactly what happened when Christ came. Then I have to come up with some kind of explanation for that. I can't merely chalk it up to superstition. If there is today in Jerusalem a scroll that was written in 125, I've seen it with my own eyes, then how in the world could it have been written before Jesus ever came? Some 155 years before the crucifixion, these words were copied down from something written even before that. So you can't just throw it away. You've got to do something with that. This is by far the best description of what happened to Jesus. By far. And it was written before he ever set foot on earth. Here's what it says. Isaiah 53. Who has believed our message? To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He, this is prophetically referring to Jesus. He grew up like a tender shoot, like a root out of the dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain, like one to whom men hide their faces. He was despised and we held him in low esteem. Now watch this. Surely he took up our pain and bore our sufferings. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. He was pierced for our transgressions. What's that talking about? He was killed for your joy seeking. He was murdered because you looked to things to satisfy you that can't possibly do it. And God couldn't stand that. His love was too great. That's what he's talking about. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter. As a sheep before its shears is silent, he didn't open his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. Yet who of his generation protested? He was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgressions of my people, he was punished. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. Though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Here's where the mind just blows. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, he will see his offspring and prolong his days. And the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. After he has suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great and will divide the spoils by the strong. Because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered among the transgressors, he bore the sins of many and made intercession for the transgressors. This is perhaps the most important passage in the entire Bible. And the opportunity to, to speak it before you has left me trembling. 
because this gets to the heart of what it all is about. God and His reaction to our idolatrous worship was to take on the substitutionary sacrifice Himself. God's reaction to us seeking joy in everything but God was to provide us joy by giving up Himself. Jesus left heaven, became a man, lived a perfect life, never substituting God for anything else. God was always the object of His greatest delight. He always found the greatest joy in God. Therefore, He and He alone was uniquely able to bear our sin. Sin, that big churchy word we only use when we're having dessert. That word simply means me substituting something else for God. That's it. Have I sought joy apart from Jesus? Yes. We all have. We share that. That's simply what sin is. Sin is me substituting myself for God, and salvation is God substituting Himself for me. The cry of Easter is don't settle for a substitute that doesn't work. Don't give your life to work. Don't make work the object of worship because it will fail you. Don't make sex the object of worship because as good as it is, it will fail you. Don't make having a spouse the object of your worship because as great as marriage is, it will fail you. Don't make your appearance, your looks, the object of your greatest affections. Because when you get old, you'll get wrinkly. We could take anything and everything and put it in that camp. Idols never fail to fail. But God, God can satisfy. God can give joy. God can give meaning in life. And your quest to find those things is not at odds with God's commands on how we live. They are one and the same. They are the pursuit of the same thing. We simply have been sold a lie that God is a grumpy, angry, uptight father that cannot possibly be satisfied. Friends, God is not like your dad. God is perfect. And God is loving. And God took upon Himself what we deserve for not worshiping Him. John Stott, who's dead now, but was one of the greatest leaders of the modern Christian era, said this, The only way for God's holy love to be satisfied is for His holiness to be directed in judgment upon the substitute in order that His love might be directed towards us in forgiveness. The substitute, that's Jesus, bears the penalty. The sinners, that's us, receive the pardon. Friends, we desire and pursue and build our life around whatever we think will be the most satisfying thing. And my aim today is not to tell you that's a bad thing, but to tell you if you're trading God then you're going to be disappointed. 
And if you'll substitute God in exchange for whatever else you've put in His place, not only do you get heaven when you die, you get eternity with God, but you get the beginnings of a total radical reformation of yourself. Because God Himself will come to live in you and change you. God is pleading with you right now. Pursue me as your greatest joy. Because in Christ I've pursued you. Would you pray with me? I wonder if while we pray, you would take a moment to reflect on the songs we've sung and the words we heard in the baptisms, the scripture we've read. And maybe you didn't come today planning to do this, but could you ask God what his message is to you today and what he would have you to do? If you have already accepted Christ's death for you, maybe you've seen today that you've returned to worshiping something else, pursuing joy in something other than God. Honor Him today, this Easter, by turning from that and turning back to Him. If you're here today and you've never given your life to Christ, you never found His substituting of himself true before. You can turn to him by confessing your pursuit of joy in things apart from God and asking him to come and to save you. Father, we acknowledge collectively as a people that we have all sought joy, fulfillment, meaning, life apart from you. We've all worshipped something other than you. And it's tremendously humbling that your response to that is to give yourself for us. May that message not just go in one ear and out the other. May it penetrate us down to our very hearts, our core. And may we respond to you by accepting your sacrifice for us. And then not taking that message, that gospel, and setting it on a shelf as the thing we need to get to heaven when we die, but the very message we need to live every moment of every day. Because Christians need the gospel too. And we pray, Lord, that we would find the truth to be truthful, that there is life and joy and contentment and meaning and peace in you. Forgive us where we've sought that apart from you. And may we find that all the lesser joys, when ordered right in our lives, do produce happiness, and yet they just erupt into praise to you.
We pray that no one would leave today having not been impacted by your truth. We praise you and thank you for what you've done for us. In Jesus' name, amen.